concept of a 20-minute city is simple, to design and enhance people's interactions around physical neighborhoods. The concept started in Portland, Oregon, and is around an area with a radius of about five kilometers, about a 20-minute public transport or cycle trip, with a potential population catchment of around 200,000 people. This size and structure could be home to a number of communities and neighborhoods that between them offer most of the services, activities, and social infrastructure to meet essential people needs. There are many features that need to be considered in a 20-minute city neighborhood, local employment, affordable and diverse housing, and integrated transport to name some of the key ones. So does a 20-minute city framework create and enhance regenerative and resilient behaviors? Hi, and welcome to Moonshot City. I'm Preeti Ambani, and I'm here with Juhi Sharif. And together, we're exploring the big questions around what makes a resilient and regenerative city. Today, we're delighted to welcome our guest, Dr. Ian White. Ian has been Professor of Environmental Planning at the University of Waikato in New Zealand since 2013, and is currently the Associate Dean Research for Arts, Law, Psychology, and Social Science. Prior to this, he was the director of the Centre for Urban and Regional Ecology at the University of Manchester in the UK. He's a planner who's committed to engaging beyond the discipline to analyse new forms of spatial development, climate change adaptation and addressing the housing crisis. Ian is the author of four books. Currently, Ian is asking the big questions around what kind of an economy do we want to have and how can our substantial investments to stimulate recovery, help us transition. Dr. Ian White is making the case for putting local at the core of New Zealand's economic recovery. Welcome to Moonshot City, Ian. Okay, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure. So Ian, what does effective city planning look like? How must we plan for resilient and regenerative cities? Well, a good place to start is to think about what is planning and what's its purpose. So it's one of the the few tools available for governments to manage land and resources and and to look at the minerals we have or protect the things we value. And and someone's going to make those decisions and protect the things that we value. So a good way to think about it is the opposite, is what what would happen if we had no planning? What would the world look like? What would be lost? And who would be most disadvantaged? So it links to wider issues like fairness or intergenerational equity or place creation. So a good way to think about what planning could do is to consider what your favorite place is and to think about someone created that for you, knowing that you would enjoy it, but they've never met you. So there's a strong public good element too. So effective city planning depends on what you see it achieving. It can look at long-term goals and to try and shape developments. You have the right activities in the right place. And every city has this long-term plan. And then the second bit is probably one which most listeners are familiar with is the development control, which is you try and limit the waste, the noise, and those kind of effects on your neighbours. But in simple terms, I think effective city planning is mostly around the former, to try and shape the strategic vision over a 10 to 50-year time frame. And then you get the more difficult questions about effective planning for whom. So a developer wants a fast process with few constraints or rules, whereas citizens want to feel represented. And and what about nature? Who speaks for nature? 
So effective planning um, is kind of political process, and it's about how you see the ideologies, the, uh, how you see the world. Do we need to encourage investment or markets to achieve outcomes, or do we do we acknowledge that they have limitations too? So climate change, for example, is a classic example of market failure. It doesn't really you know, take into account the future in the way that sometimes we do or some of the people do. Effective planning depends on the political ideology that shapes what that does in a country. So the scope and the power it gives it and where does its influence start and where does it end? And what we've seen recently is a lot of the main debates in New Zealand and Australia and the UK and elsewhere is that the purpose of planning is to do things quite quickly and in volume. So we need more houses, more roads, more pipes, and we need it quicker and less red tape. But one of the things I think is that we need to move away from this focus on rules or speed, or or sometimes I use the phrase doing the wrong thing more efficiently, and then start to think about what is the purpose of planning? What do we see it achieving? And I think effective planning is basically thinking again from first principles about it can do a lot if we allow it to, but we've got to think about what we'd like it to deliver for societies. Thanks so much for unpacking that, Ian. Firstly, I'm really excited that you talk about vision, because I think that that's something that isn't often talked about when we're talking about planning. To build on what you were saying, you know, in New Zealand, as in many countries around the world, there is an absolute focus on shovel-ready projects and removing the red tape to make sure that these infrastructure projects are up and running as quickly as possible to create employment. So how can we resist the temptation of looking at building infrastructure just as a means to create jobs and rather look at infrastructure that enables long-term prosperity and regenerative economies? Well, I mean, it's a really good question because um, there's no easy answer. I think what we're seeing now is this is a battleground of ideas. So planning is just, it's an arm of the state. And so it feeds into those discussions about how much do you want the state to interfere in your freedom to do things, but it's freedom to pollute or freedom to be stuck in traffic or, or whatever. So that's the starting point. What do you see the role of the state and, and taking this idea of a public good in the long term? So turning to the, the show already work, it's been quite interesting. So globally, we've seen actually a really consistent trend in the response to the economic crisis. And that's been to invest heavily using the resources of the state going increasing your national debt. I mean, just use an example of New Zealand. Our debt to GDP ratio is something like 20%, which is incredibly low internationally. A lot of countries are more near 100%. But because of this, uh, because of the COVID virus and our economic response, that's going to increase from 20% to 50%. So that's the scale of investment is absolutely mind-blowing. Normally, we're arguing for scraps from tables and, and to try and get the things we want. And now, all of a sudden, there's a huge investment. So we need to get it right. So, I mean, a good place to start is thinking, well, it's actually good that we've seen a lot of countries around the world follow the same response. And it's because we've had a, a crisis quite recently, which was the global financial crisis around 2008. And and so the evidence is out about how different countries responded in different ways. And we know those countries who invested and went into more debt. So the state invested to offset the reduction in consumer confidence and private sector investment. They actually had a shallower and shorter recession than those who didn't. So everybody's learned those lessons and everybody's invested in shovel-ready infrastructure. 
one of the things around why it's infrastructure is infrastructure is one of those magic words that appeals to both the left and the right. So the trick is you don't define what you mean by infrastructure. So is it a road? Is it a cycleway? Is it 5G? Is it any kind of thing? You know, it could be natural assets. And so by not defining what infrastructure is, you win an argument for state investment. Ian, can you talk more to that? So what we've seen in New Zealand, to the UK and Australia, to name just a handful, is that there's a focus on shovel-ready infrastructure. So this is quick jobs, quick decisions, rather than using this. I mean, it is a once-in-a-generation investment to make significant changes to our cities and our lifestyles. And, and infrastructure has a, a huge effect on our lives. So the example I always use to give you an example of the legacy of infrastructure decisions is the A1 in England is actually on the site of an old Roman road. So that Roman engineer from 2000 years ago is now shaping someone's commute 2000 years later. And we don't tend to move infrastructure around too much. If there's a road here, it tends to just be expanded or maybe changed a little, but it tends to be in the same place. So the infrastructure we put in will have a massive influence on our, our future carbon emissions, our quality of life, and so on. And, and so we need to think about doing it differently. A good quote to explain this is from Winston Churchill during the London rebuild at the, the end of the, the Second World War. And he said, first we shape our structures, then they shape us. So the structures we put down will shape our behavior. If we build more roads and build on the periphery of cities and expand, our urban footprint, we know that generations of people will be stuck in traffic, traveling to a place of work. So we need to think about the influence of infrastructure on behavior, which then feeds into a whole lot of other agendas around well-being or productivity. I mean, how much time do we spend traveling around, for example? So if we can travel less time, that's a huge amount of economic productivity boost for cities all around the world because those people aren't being efficient if they're sat in traffic. And so thinking about infrastructure from a broader perspective and this longer term perspective from just short term job creation and using it to transition to think about the kind of economy we want, the kind of local economy we want and the lifestyle we want people to enjoy in these cities is pretty critical to some of the work we've been doing over the 20 minute city. That's a great quote, Ian, that you shared from Churchill. And you've just started talking about the 20 minute city. First of all, what is a 20-minute city and what kind of behaviors you think a 20-minute city will embed or will encourage us to do? How will we be shaped by the 20-minute city? The idea where we started from was we knew the Shovel Ready Infrastructure Fund was started in, in New Zealand and there was a call for proposals from local government to try and kickstart their economy. So I had a conversation with the New Zealand Transport Agency and the, the Hamilton City Council, and we came up with this idea of doing something different. So infrastructure is meant to serve us. So it can make our lifestyle worse as well as better. And so we need to think about the lifestyle we want, and then we create the infrastructure that allows us to have that lifestyle. So we turned it on its head. And instead of putting infrastructure first, we put the lifestyle first and then decided what kind of infrastructure do we need to deliver that? So it goes back to your initial point about vision, about the importance of having the vision. And the other 
thing which I'm going to link to shortly is is the power that visions have in, the, in actually creating new imaginaries and new possibilities where people didn't think they wanted it and now you show them and they want it. So a good example is if you're a planner and you go to the citizens and you think about, well, what do you want from you know our next long-term plan? They'll tend to say things like, well, we need more parking. Whereas if you say how about this? Do you want a 20-minute city? And they didn't realize they wanted it, and now they do. And they think, yeah, that seems pretty good. But it's the same idea as parking, which parking is basically about time. They want to spend less time stuck in congestion or less time doing different things. So we started off with this idea of a lifestyle and a vision for a place, and we use this idea of a 20-minute city because in, in simple terms, it's about living locally. We've all seen that in the lockdown. We've all started to value our local area much more than perhaps we did before. We go for a, a local walk. We see our neighbors a little bit more. And we see the green spaces that perhaps we walk past because we had this daily exercise. And so we also are very conscious of our neighbors and the jobs that we have and how we need to invest in our cafes and, and buy coffees or, or support local bookshops. So it was a good example of what is of value to people. And, and the 20-minute city was around bringing that to life. So the idea is, is that it aims to give you most of what you need for a good life within a 20-minute walk, cycle, or public transport trip. Um, so local employment, shopping, health, community facilities, education, playgrounds, parks should all be easily accessible by everyone. So there's an equity there as well. So you don't need to commute so much. You might be able to have more interactions with your local area. So that vision comes first. And then you think about the kind of infrastructure. We need the amenities in the right place and the kind of planning, the rules and the regulations to enable us to transition towards that. So a, a good underpinning idea of a lifestyle is, you know, is to think about Auckland or London or some of the major cities around the world. And if you want to put a time attached to that, what kind of a city would it be? Would it be a one hour city? a 90-minute city, a two-hour city? And is that the kind of lifestyle the planning should be delivering for you? Or do you want something else? The other point to make is it's not necessarily for every city around the world in the same way. So we can employ a 20-minute city in Hamilton because we're at this sort of nice sweet spot of size around 170,000 people. If you're looking to employ the idea in Melbourne, or Singapore, you're probably looking at 20-minute neighborhoods. So to try and have a different model, but it's the same concepts and the same philosophy. So the idea is that the lifestyle, it's a lifestyle-first planning, lifestyle-first infrastructure, and then, but you get added benefits beyond that. So you should get less time in congestion, which means you might be able to spend more time with friends and family. There's fewer road traffic accidents um, because there's less hours spent on the road lower greenhouse gas emissions. So you might even get a reduction in noise or stormwater pollution to improve water quality. You get health benefits because active travel is easier to have. It's just an everyday choice rather than something you might need to you know, drive to park or drive to the gym to exercise. And then because things are more connected, you start to see more local spending, more local economies, more of that money kept in a local economy, which then creates added vibrancy. So there's a lot of added benefits you can get from this. And, and once you actually mention it to people, 
they really get behind it. So the idea is taken on wings here in Hamilton. And there's a lot of people who are now arguing for this. And this is the kind of thing we should be going in. It just shows the power of an idea. And I'd sometimes refer back to, there's a, a quote from Henry Ford, which well, it's attributed to Henry Ford when he designed the first motor car. Um, and he used the example, you know, if I'd asked the people what they wanted, they'd have said faster horses, because horses was the main mode of transport then. But he showed them something else. And then that took on a life its own. And people said they wanted it. So as a lifestyle choice, it's about having housing choices in different areas of different sizes. One of the problems of this agenda is if you create a place that's really attractive to live, you start to see gentrification and you start to see land values rise, which can force people out. So you try and go into this knowingly to try and create more diverse housing stock of different sizes or maybe more public housing as well in order to make sure that this is about a community rather than a means for land speculation to make money, for example. So, Ian, that's really interesting because I know we've talked before about gentrification and we use the example of Ponsonby, which is a well-to-do suburb in Auckland, where you could really argue that there isn't much diversity in terms of the amenities that are on offer. There's a lot of boutiques, there's a lot of cafes and restaurants. And, you know, if you're an elderly person and you want to go out and get some groceries, it's a bit more challenging. You really need a car. So it's great to hear you talking about considering all of that up front. Can you tell us more about your work in Hamilton? You talked a bit about how it came about, but can you unpack that a bit for us? It started because this is part of looking at the issues we have within New Zealand, which are pretty common to a lot of other places around the world. So for listeners not familiar with the New Zealand context, Auckland's our major urban conurbation. It's about a third of the population of New Zealand. Major disbenefits starting to happen. Lots of you know, traffic congestion. The new roads don't seem to be helping that too much. And so you're starting to see people moving for lifestyle options, for example. But one of the things that the government did to try and address that was to, to build the train line between Auckland and its nearest neighbour, Hamilton. So to do that, they realised that it was quite difficult within the rules and the planning system that we had. So there was very little need for these local authorities to look at things on a big regional perspective and to think about long-term change. So you had a different siloed working within different places. There was also a, a break between sort of land use and housing and transport, which was run by a separate agency. So for example, we didn't, we, one of the ways that you make trains work is by linking it to land use. And then you get the gravity of people living in the right area of the stations. You've got the population, the footfall to try and justify that expenditure, which the state has to put down to put the tracks down. And so we started to think about this long-term, what I call spatial planning, which is a wider strategic long-term vision of planning over a larger spatial scale, which we've not tended to do too often in New Zealand. But the impacts were such that it was pushing us towards that kind of thinking. So as part of the work we've been doing on this long-term plan on the train line and thinking about the future of Hamilton and how it might be affected and how we can develop, this was all going on at the same time as we had the, the COVID pandemic 
and the economic stimulus. So we, we're already deep in conversations between different partners who wouldn't normally speak together. So I was there as an academic. You had different local authorities all working together in the same room and different government agencies as well, which is important. So people like the Treasury and New Zealand Transport Agency. So we've been testing some of these ideas in quite this safe space because it was thinking about different futures rather than actually in the context of law or regulation that we needed to do within a specific timescale. And then we had the call for shovel riders funds and I got a phone call from some New Zealand transport agency who was saying, we need to advance some of these ideas. This is a great opportunity. And we put our heads together and we came up with the idea of the 20 minute city to try and wrap around some of the thinking we've done and try and communicate that in a really good way. So that's the other value of the 20 minute city. People get it. And if you talk about planning to people, they can switch off. But if you talk about a 20-minute city, you see their eyes light up and they get more excited. So it's a really good communication device for people to think about the purpose of planning and how it can influence land markets and capital allocation and also transport options and wrap them up within this integrated idea. Can I just jump in there? Because you could actually argue that the new mayor in Paris and Hidalgo has been voted back in as mayor because of her plans to transform Paris into a 15-minute city. So I think that shows how powerful this concept is. So she's basically saying, you know, remove 72% of city car parking spaces, have a cycle path for every street in the city. And arguably, you could say that that has got her re-elected. It's a great example of political risk and political reward. So you'll get a lot of mayors around the world who'll be looking at this and they'll see it in terms of political risk. They'll think, we're changing the status quo. We'll have to work hard to get the citizens. Have we got the evidence to back it up? Is it too hard? I'm running for election in a year's time. Which constituencies would I annoy? But there's a blueprint there for how this should be done. And it will need to be tweaked in different ways in different places. So uh, Paris is a a 15-minute city. And it's, I remember going there sort of 10, 15 years ago, and it was noisy, it was polluted, and there were sidewalks. So, you know, there wasn't much room for pedestrians. And then, but they do have this beautiful urban form of this nice scale to the place. It's very human-centered. So it had the major advantage of expanding at a time before the car was invented. And so you get this lovely urban form. Whereas if you look at particularly places around the US or Canada, cities that were built after the car or expanded after the car, you see the, the influence of this technology on its urban form, where we do get the major motorways and the out of town shopping centers and those kind of aspects. So what she's done is she's made it less risky for other mayors to do it but it's still surprising that it's not common at all and there's no city in new zealand actually running with it yet but you start to see the ideas now happen so i think one of the main interesting things about it is the use of minutes and the use of time people get that and they get that if we want this then there's a certain amount of rules and regulations and infrastructure that are going to deliver that but if we buy into the vision then we also accept that there's going to be trade-offs too. So we might have to live more densely in certain areas in order to justify the amenities that you're going to get. So it's a trade-off. If you want that kind of lifestyle where you want access to amenities, you can live there. If you don't, 
maybe other places in the city are for you. Or There's always these lifestyle choices. No one's forcing anyone to live in this city and have this way. But over time, people will move here because they'll they'll see the benefits and it will appeal to a certain kind of people that they've never had the choice before. So Ian, um, on that point, in terms of, you know, there's no real 20-minute city in New Zealand or not even, you know, not many cities around the world that have this concept, even though this concept is so, we are so ready for this. So do you think the question in the minds of planners or government agencies is this whole idea of how to retrofit an existing legacy city and how do they actually wrap their heads around converting this legacy model, which is all about transporting groups of people from outside of the city into the city for work and back. And they're not able to sort of shift and see the possibilities of a 20-minute city. So is it possible to actually retrofit an existing city? The short answer is yes, but I'll go into a bit more detail because it depends on a number of factors. So basically every 20-minute city will need to be retrofitted because we're not really in the business of creating new towns like we did after the war, for example. Although there are parts of the world that are actually creating new towns, so they could do this. So the difficulty with retrofitting is that you have less power. So one of the things that planning does is that you know, we give property rights to people once they build. And that means you can't ask them to do certain things and they have rights to keep that property. So if we're responding to proposals, we have power to get outcomes we want. But once the urban farm's already there, you've got less ability to do it. So we start to think about the nature of land use. So you've got this public realm. In any city, there's land that's owned by the state. And that is a lot of the public realm works, so roads, sidewalks, parks, public squares, government buildings. So the stuff that's owned by the state or by government, you've got absolute power to change that in different ways. And you can do it within a strategic vision in order to get these sort of synergies between land uses. Ian, can you talk more about the public realm and the way that we can incentivize for certain activities? So if you own a building, there's less power to compel people to change it, but you do have other tools too. So I can incentivize. I can provide rates discounts for activities we want more of. There are some tools that all planning systems have around compulsory purchase of land, but it's really unpopular. So it's not a tool used very often. We use it for motorways, on the line, but we don't tend to use it for something like this. So once you have rights over land, the state doesn't normally intrude over those unless there's something major going on. So we tend to think about this idea of soft power as well as laws of regulation. So we can use incentives. And one of the things we can do, for example, is to is to think about the state differently. So instead of being reactive to proposals, it can be a bit more proactive. So what we see in, in New Zealand and in other places around the world that are a bit more established is what we call urban development agencies or public-private partnerships. So the state becomes this quasi-private sector actor and invest in development. So they'll set up a company to do that. So as they've got skin in the game and financial control and they'll go in partnership with developers or private sector actors, they can start to get the outcomes they want. And you see these discussed much more in New Zealand over the last few years, but they're still pretty rare. And it's partly because mayors don't want to tread on the toes of property developers by becoming a property developer, even if it's only in partnership. 
And they tend to see the political risk of getting it wrong. So what if we buy a building and we lose money? And that's not our job and I'd rather not do that. So there's a real risk aversion in local politics all around the world. But we've got different tools available to retrofit. This is also a longer term vision. So you start to line things up over time, knowing that there's things you can do quite early, your public realm works, and and other times you're waiting for land markets uh, to start churning over. So there's a churn in every city, depending on development pressures and, and depending on how active its growth is. So there's different land and property markets everywhere. So if you're in a high growth city, there tends to be a high turnover. So there's a little bit more opportunity to get outcomes you want on an ongoing basis. Places which aren't growing as much, it's a little bit more difficult and a little bit slower. But there's things you can do to try and stimulate markets to act by incentivizing different activities. So part of the difficulty is just retrofitting strategically. So lining up land uses when part of your land's public, Part of it's private, parts owned by companies or trusts. Some may be held essentially as a pension and left alone for 20 years, and and some people need rapid returns. So what we've seen in a lot of cities is land and property used as pensionable funds, which means that they're not as active in generating public good outcomes because that's not the purpose. So you're trying to essentially working with different holders of assets and the way they generate capital and being creative about persuading their interests to align with yours. I think one of the benefits of Hamilton is that it's not too big. So you've actually got 170,000 people. We're growing rapidly from a New Zealand context. So we're going to see tens of thousands of people over the next sort of few decades start to emerge. So we've got a lot of growth coming in. We can use that growth and direct it in ways which actually save money for this thing, create social outcomes we'd like to have. So because you're in a high growth city and because you've got a vision where all your rules and your, your regulations could be aligned within this, you've got a pretty good opportunity for that to become the normalized outcome over time. But it's not something that you can deliver next week. And so, I mean, we've talked about time, but it's part of communication advice. that there's no one with a stopwatch, but if we want to have the kind of lifestyle we want, we need to create the kind of places where people can do that. That's linking with land use, with amenities, and transitioning land use over time so we get the outcomes and this long-term outcomes that are part of this plan and this vision, which hopefully citizens invest in. That's fantastic, Ian. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I'm kind of going off topic slightly, but one of the things that we've discussed before is the work that the Moonshot City team have been doing with our Indigenous people here in New Zealand. So with Maori people looking at building regenerative and resilient communities and cities. So a lot of the work has centered around the interpretation of reimagining of the Kate Rayworth donut to become this Takarangi spiral. And um, what do you see as the role of Indigenous voices when you're planning this 20-minute city, which sounds like such a fantastic place to live? It's a really good question because it's quite New Zealand specific in the fact that we do have the Treaty of Waitangi and there's a clear role for them in decision making. And there's a different worldview, which a lot of overseas listeners wouldn't be familiar with, but it is much more in line with the, I mean, the Kate Rowers Donut model is actually a really natural fit to some indigenous thinking about using resources sustainably 
to try and think about future generations and having their voices represented in current decision making. So if you enjoyed fishing or going white baiting is a really good example, you should expect your grandchildren to do it. And if we don't use resources sustainable, that's in threat and therefore that's wrong. So there's some real good lessons that conventional economic development can learn from the Maori indigenous worldview. Part of the difficulty is normalizing that within decision-making frameworks because we have this economic model where we apply cost-benefit analysis to decisions and we discount the future quite frequently. The longer the term the future goes, the more we discount it because it's hard to work out the effects. And the, the classic climate change example, again, is that we're thinking about 2080 as some of the climate change scenarios. And we don't know what that would look like with regard to the economic effects. So we tend to discount those in decision making. Whereas that wouldn't happen within you know, an indigenous worldview because the future generations should be represented within decision-making. So part of the ideas behind the 20-minute city, I think resonate with regard to the idea of localism and land, being part of a place and investing in that place. So I think another aspect which overseas listeners might not be familiar with is the role of iwi in New Zealand planning, where there are actually major investors in futures, and, and they tend to invest in the places where they live. So in, in Hamilton, it's Waikato Tainui who have a development arm to their business where they use their investment and use their money to try and generate wealth for future generations. And they invest in the place that their, that their tribal lands are held and they buy more land and they invest in it. And it's actually a really sustainable place-based model that we can learn a lot from in conventional economics, which I think other people around the world probably won't be that familiar with. But in New Zealand, it's a great opportunity because you've got natural allies to a lot of these ideas and they they resonate with them. They, they you know, There's different terms and concepts which they apply to it according to their worldview and, and histories and so on. But once you explain it, there's a lot of similarities and commonality between what I would call good positive planning around the public good and the environment and, and place-based and so on, and what would be a natural indigenous and Maori worldview. It's great to hear about how you think that indigenous voices can be part of this 20-minute city and the role of iwi, that's Maori tribes, in all of that. So it's been great to really start to understand a bit more behind the thinking around the 20-minute city. And we're very, very excited about the work that you're doing in Hamilton and the leadership that Hamilton is showing in this space. So watch this space, right? Yeah, well, lots of credit to, to Hamilton leaders. They, they might have thought, I was, what is this crazy idea? Um, but they went for it and now they've bought into it and and we've got this stimulus fund and we're uh, we're waiting to see if the government will invest and give us the resources to deliver this and the other exciting thing about it is we've got this big research arm attached to the bid too so we can one of the reasons why this doesn't happen is that we don't have the evidence of the effect so we know people who cycle more healthier but how much money does that save from a health bill we know people shift modes when to different forms of transport when you give them choices. But what are the things that make that more likely to happen in a New Zealand context? And how much money do they spend from a local economic perspective? So we're going to set up this living laboratory in order to monitor the effects and the change in real time and working with 
citizen scientists is the idea. And so this is a live experiment of change as well as a live experiment of outcomes in order to try and create the data and the evidence base in order to make change more likely elsewhere and allow those mayors to win their own internal arguments. So we should find out soon whether we are receiving the investment from government as part of the shovel ready fund. But if not, I think this is an idea that now has taken on a bit of a life on its own. And, and that's great because that's one of the, the purposes of academia is to get these different possibilities out there and then watch them taken up by practitioners and policymakers and the general public too. That's fantastic, Ian. You know, live experiment and change. What a wonderful thought. And you can't, you can't improve what you don't measure. So really excited to see this research lab set up and the lessons that it's going to highlight for cities all around the world. Thank you so much, Ian, for joining us. Yes, thanks, Ian. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you for the invitation. Really enjoyed it. Visit us at projectmoonshot.city and on Twitter at Moonshot City. I'm Juhi Sharif. I'm Preeti Ambani. This is Moonshot City.